Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Eventually, a scientist was able to get a spark to come out of a fish. And so then that kind of sealed it, that this is the same thing. This is the fish are producing this static electricity. Welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Now then, we don't know where or when exactly humans lit their very first fire. Those cinders are well and truly lost. But we do know where the first battery is. The very first time humans harnessed, not fire, but electricity. It's a column of metal discs the size of drinks coasters, if you can imagine that. And it was created around the turn of the 19th century by Alessandro Volta. And it's guilty of all the things that are really annoying about batteries today. It's heavy. It's not as powerful as we'd like. It would have taken ages to charge. It's covered in that weird metal gunk stuff that old batteries get. But there it is. The beginning of a new age, the beginning of an age that completely revolutionised life on Earth. These days, batteries most often power things that distance us from nature, if you like, the phones and the devices that we lose ourselves in. But what's really wonderful about today's story, I think, of how the battery began is that it's all about scientists who are actually obsessed by nature who immersed themselves in it and desperately wanted to solve one of its great mysteries. Think of that image of Benjamin Franklin flying a kite into rumbling clouds, a man reaching out across a dark divide in search of an understanding. My guest today is Timothy Jorgensen, author of the book Spark, The Life of Electricity, and the electricity of life. And Tim and I do talk about Franklin and his kite, but we're mostly focused this episode on Italy, Volta, and a certain Mediterranean fish that had been bothering fishermen for millennia. And it's a fish with a rather painful sting in its tail. Maybe the flat earthers are into that. I don't understand how the flat earthers can deal with things like daylight saving and all that. Okay. Many all questions. Right. So, so should we talk about batteries? <laughs> no, I'm quite enjoying talking about flat earth. Hey, Tim, welcome to the show. Nice to have you. Well, thanks for inviting me, Dallas. It's such a mysterious thing, electricity. And I wonder how far we can go back. I mean, we can go back a lot further, I suspect, than Volta 
we'll we'll come into batteries in a moment. But where do, where does this our relationship with electricity begin? Okay, so I can answer that in a word: amber. Okay, amber. Amber, as in as in tree sap. Amber. Exactly. Uh, primitive peoples found that if you rubbed amber with wool, you could create sparks and get little shocks and get little pieces of dust and straw to move around. And they thought that it had magical and mystical qualities. So they associated it, this property with the occult. And in fact, the word electricity has its origin from electrical, which has an origin, a Greek and Latin origin, which means like amber. So uh, it, it goes all huh. the way back to that. That's nice. So this is prehistoric because they found amber jewelry in settlements and things like that. So people were aware of it and people were wearing woolen clothing. So very early on, people were aware of the electrical properties of amber. There is something deeply mysterious about electromagnetism still. (laughs) You know, I can totally imagine, I can absolutely imagine why ancient civilizations would be like, what the hell is this? What's going on? And and attribute it to, to supernaturalism. So rubbing, obviously, so static electricity, people were aware of it. But when did it become, I don't know, become, when did it sort of come out of the realms of supernaturalism and into the world of, I suppose, of science? Well, it attracted the interest of serious scientists fairly early on. But the problem was the only way to produce it was by rubbing things together. Now, fortunately, there, you don't, it doesn't have to be amber and wool. An easier way to, to create static electricity is to rub glass and silk, which were readily available. And so some of the first scientists created instruments that would generate static electricity. And the easiest way to do it was to put a piece of glass, you can imagine, just, let's just imagine a bottle uh, rotating on some type of hand crank turntable with a piece of silk rub pressed against it. And that would generate static electricity. And then they could do little experiments and things like that. It was difficult to do uh, these experiments because it wasn't always reproducible. One of the reasons it wasn't always reproducible was that static electricity doesn't like moisture. So if the air is humid, it kind of dissipates quickly. And it took a while for them to figure that out. But that meant that for the most part, experiments were confined to the winter months when the air was drier. And, and when, when summertime rolled around, they kind of <laughs> shut down shop and, uh, and did other thing, <laughs> things. So, what, did, what were the kind of ideas about what it was? I mean, sort of beyond, you know, supernatural explanations. What kind of early ideas did they, were people thinking that it was? Well, people had, once they've eliminated the supernatural, that most people started focusing on the idea that electricity was some type of invisible fluid. Like a kind of ether. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But but it was believed that with either one invisible fluid or two invisible fluids. And the reason they thought that is that they knew that electric charge behaved differently. You could have positive charge and you could have negative charge, but they didn't understand how that could be if it was all one fluid. So some people had this two fluid theory. But it wasn't until Benjamin Franklin came along and he became really fascinated with static electricity. And the reason he became interested in it, because there was a traveling show that was going around the United States and, and in Europe, um, there were static electricity shows 
where performers would come and they would make, you've, you've seen people with static electricity, their hair go, would go up. and they Yes. Make, so it was still a sort of novelty. It was very much a sort of novelty. It was a novelty. And so people did this for amusement and people went to shows like that. And there was one that stopped in Philadelphia while Franklin was living in Philadelphia. And he went to the show and he became absolutely fascinated with this. And, and he had a number of, of scientific colleagues, both in the U.S. and England. And so he started writing letters to his colleagues and he found out that yes there were people that were studying this and there were different theories and he was told about the two fluid theory but he he began doing experiments in earnest himself and he came up with an alternative theory which he called the one fluid theory and basically this theory is quite simple to understand it's that everything has a certain natural amount of electric charge. Mm -hmm. And that when you rub two things together, you scrape the charge away from one thing and onto the other. Mm -hmm. And that charge wants to get back home. And and it jumps back home in the form of a spark or, or whatever. And that was his one fluid theory of electricity. And it it answered a lot of questions. And so people became fond of the one fluid theory, although many people suspected that there really wasn't a fluid at all. Mm. Uh, Michael Faraday was one of the ones who really took the single fluid uh, hypothesis to task. But nevertheless, it, it worked for the time. And the single fluid theory lasted for about 100 years, you know. So. Hey, um, we're jumping ahead. Let's go all the way back. I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you about fish please. Fish. Can we talk about fish and electric? Because this is a thing that I, I didn't really, well, reading your stuff, I was like, what? <laughs> I've heard of electric eels, but okay. tell us about torpedo fish. <laughs> okay. So in Europe, the most familiar, ele- there are many electrical fish species throughout the world. Mm. In Europe, the most famous is the torpedo fish, which is in the Mediterranean. And uh, even the ancients were familiar with torpedo fish because fishermen were regularly shocked by these things if they caught them in their nets. How shocking were they? Can we just can we just establish like if I if I sort of touched a torpedo fish, what would it be like touching an electric fence? I'm trying to get a kind of yes, yeah, it will give you quite a jolt. Very, very unpleasant. People were wary of them. You know, it wouldn't kill you or anything. Mm. These fishes cannot kill people. And they don't even kill their prey, actually. They just stun them. Mm -hmm. But you experience a very, very painful shock. So the ancients were familiar with these things. And of course, people, as being people, they always want to apply every phenomena that they discovered to their health. (laughs) And so the Romans would prescribe shocking everything on your body with torpedo fish if you had an ailment. (laughs) Sort of like leeches. Literally both ends. There were people who said that you needed to shock your head for a headache. You needed to shock your butt for hemorrhoids. You know, it was a ready treatment. So people were familiar with, with that. So nobody doubted that these fish produced something that was very much like electricity. But... They weren't exactly sure it was the same thing. After all, it was coming from a fish. So some people went down to fishermen in the, uh, in the Mediterranean to try to sort this out. And they would shock them with static electricity and ask them if that felt the same as the fish. And the fishermen tested, oh, yeah, that, that's the same. Mm-hmm. There was one problem. Uh, so the scientists were able to show that whatever the electrical fish was doing and whatever static electricity was doing, it was the same except... They could never get a spark 
to come from a fish. Right. But eventually, a scientist was able to get a spark to come out of a fish. And so then that kind of sealed it, that this is the same thing. This is the fish are producing this static electricity. How do the, how do the fish produce electricity? Let's Because are we when we talk about batteries, is it a case of biomimicry where engineers will take the, the biochemistry of something like a fish and, and, and create something similar using... Okay, so moving up to the battery, Volta discovered the battery, and what he was trying to do at the time was exactly that, biomimicry. He was trying to create an artificial electrical organ of an electric eel. That's what he was trying to do. So really the battery comes from biology. If we can actually sort of pin it down to exactly so so the static electricity obviously was not a perfect situation for working with electrical research or anything else and there was a desire to have another means to produce it and volta thought well if i could simulate uh, the electric organ of a fish then i'd have an artificial source of uh, of electricity and so that's how he started doing his work And he was aware that if you put two different metals together, that you could get a small amount of electricity. And the reason he knew that is he had uh, metal instruments that he used in his laboratory. And if there were bimetallic, in other words, made of two different metals, they would generate tiny amounts of electricity. And if they were just a single metal, they wouldn't. And so based on that, he started combining different metals to see if he could produce more electricity. And then when he saw the organ of an electric fish, it looks like stacked coins. It's, it's a long cylindrical object. It looks like a roll of coins, basically. And he thought, well, maybe if I put these different metals together in alternation and stack them, I can amplify this because that's how the eel does it. And so he started playing with different combinations. And eventually he found that a combination of, of copper and zinc interspersed with a piece of paper with an electrolyte. Electrolyte is basically salt water, conducts electricity. If he did that, he could produce more electricity. And the more he stacked, the more the electricity was produced. And when he finally wrote it up as a scientific paper, he called it the production of an artificial <laughs> electric organ. All right. Now, it is not. He, he discovered something completely different than the way fish make electricity. Uh, he discovered electrochemical reactions, which is what modern batteries are based on. Well, I used to have that. I used to have a, a, a clock, and on one end there'd be a bit of copper, and one end there'd be a bit of zinc, and you'd shove the ends in a lemon, and lo and behold, you would be able to power your clock. That's not quite how a fish works, but... <laughs> there you go. And that's not how a fish works. Um, a fish works. Do you want to know how a fish yeah, works? Yeah, tell us. Tell, so we've got... So that, that, but that pile of coin shape that uh, Volta used for his first pile, we'll come into that in a moment. So, the, the, visually, there's something similar going on in the organ of, a, of an eel or a torpedo fish, but t- tell us the difference. Okay, so we have to step back a little bit before Volta. So one of the reasons that Benjamin Franklin was able to be so successful and make so much progress in his electrical work was the invention in, I think it was the 1740s, late 1740s, of something called the Leyden jar. 
in the Netherlands by a man named von Muschenbroek. Now, you, now all your, your Dutch uh, listeners be are going to be in. very upset by the way I pronounce that, but that's my best try. It's the leaden jar. Explain the leaden jar. Right. So what this is, basically, imagine a mayonnaise jar, and you would line the outside of it with aluminum foil, and you would line the inside of it aluminum foil, but the inside and the outside foil would not be touching one another. And then you would take the, the lid of the jar, and you would put punch a hole in it, put an electrode sticking out, and run that wire to the inside aluminum foil. And the outside aluminum foil, you could run either run a wire to the ground or, or place the jar on the ground. And you have a Leyden jar. That's what a Leyden jar is. And what, what was it used for? Was it-, it, it was used to store static electricity. Okay. So if you made static electricity by rubbing two things together and you touch this, the charged piece to, uh, usually it's glass rod, to the top of the Leyden jar, the static electricity would run into the Leyden jar. If you did it again, it would run in again. If you did it again, it would run in again. And then you could basically supercharge these jars with static electricity. So in a way, that, that jar which we use to fill things, you would sort of fill, the idea is you fill the jar with electricity in it in- and you can see how how appealing this is to the single fluid theory right? <laughs> exactly it's like, yes yeah right so benjamin franklin fell in love with these Leyden jars he used them for all of his research to store to store electricity and if you link them together like you would put a series of flashlight batteries together you could extend the the voltage of this to huge levels and he did these kinds of things and in fact the the term battery which Volta never never used. He, he called it a pile, like we are talking about earlier, a pile of coins. But the term battery was already being used for a series of Leyden jars connected together that fired off at once, similar to a battery of cannons. Ah, okay. Oh, right. So that's where it came from. And Franklin actually used that term. He said it's like a battery of cannons, so he called it a battery. And then that term got got co-opted and over right. to the electrochemical battery of Volta at some later point. But anyway, these Leyden jars were the means that battery was stored and putting them in a series, you could get tremendous amounts of electricity in there. And that's how the fish do it. I know that was the original question. <laughs> right. Except- How except, did the fish do it? <laughs> I had forgotten about what we were talking But presumably not with aluminum foil. No. Or aluminum foil. They have a, those series of discs that were seen by Volta and others are basically little biological Leyden jars, okay? And they don't fill them using static electricity. They fill them by electrochemical means. They have enzymes that have uh, pores in them that can push ions, those are charged atoms, inside and outside of the cell. And so they basically fill these uh, cells with charged atoms and then they release them all at once and give a huge electrical jolt. Natural selection is amazing. Natural selection just always blows me away. The fact that natural selection would design, design in heavy inverted commas, something like that. So ironically, the, a battery of Leyden jars was actually an artificial, an artificial, <laughs> artificial. <laughs> electrical yeah. organ of a fish. Nice. Not not, not a Volta head. Can we call well? Can we call the first battery then a Leyden jar rather? Because I always think who invented the battery. Yes. But my it, brain always <clears throat> goes to Volta because that's what I did in. Yeah. If, in if you Google and, battery of Leyden jars, you'll see these kind yeah. of devices. They kind of look like a six pack of beer or something like that, all, yeah. all connected together. Actually, one of my earliest memories, one of my earliest book memories, I used to have the Paul Hamlin Younger Children's Encyclopedia. 
I never used to read it. I used to just go and skip through the pictures. Uh, but one of my favourite pictures was a picture of Benjamin Franklin with a kite, flying a kite into 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 a cloud and doing something with electricity. This is not apocryphal. He did do this, didn't he? Yes, he did. And what he was trying to do at the time is fill a Leyden jar, the same kind of jars that we've already spoken about. Basically, the very first time anyone had recharged a battery is what he was doing. Yes. So what he what he was trying to do was, we, we've talked about how fish, people were wondering whether that was authentic electricity because they didn't see a spark. The clouds were kind of the opposite. They they saw the sparks in mm. the sky, but they weren't sure it was, it was electricity. So Franklin said, well, I'll capture some of the electricity in a Leyden jar. So he sent a kite up with a, a you know, electrode on the, on the top and the electricity came down as far as a metallic key. And the reason he didn't get electrocuted himself is because he then held an insulating ribbon between the key and himself. And then he kept touching the, that key to the top of the Leyden jar over and over and over again. He filled the Leyden jar with electricity, took the Leyden jar back to his laboratory and said, yep, this is the same stuff that we're getting from rubbing the, <laughs> the glass and, and the soap together. It is bona fide electricity that's up in that's up in the clouds. What puzzled him for the rest of his life is how the electricity got in the clouds. He, he died not knowing that, and we know that a little better now, but that's another story. <laughs> we'll be back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
so we've got Leighton Jazz. Uh, so just explain a little bit. I, I want to talk about Volta now because 1800 is always when he was doing his, his first pile. I think it was around about sort of 1800. Yeah. Why was he doing it? Like what was the sort of purpose? Given that there was nothing that needed batteries at the time, there were no flashlights or anything else. So what was the what was the sort of the rationale of, of Volta? And maybe you could explain just a little bit about who he was. Okay, so Volta was an Italian scientist who was a, a very respected and very sophisticated scientist. There was another scientist, Italian scientist at the time, Galvani, who was promoting a theory about electricity called animal electricity. Now, we all know already, I told you, that animals do produce electricity. Electrical fish produce electricity. But what Galvani was claiming is he was claiming something more. He was claiming that all animals produce electricity, and his model for this was frogs, and specifically frog legs. And so he would kill frogs and take their legs, and these freshly killed frogs, he would connect wires in various ways, and when he got them in a certain way, he could get the frog leg to twitch, to move. Yeah. And he claimed that in doing this, and don't ask me to explain the details because I don't really understand his logic on this. I can picture it, though. I can can picture it. He would get the frog leg to move, and he concluded from that that the frog leg itself was making electricity. All right. Hmm. So this really riled Volta. You know, initially he was happy that, oh my God, another source of electricity. But then he became suspicious. What Galvani was claiming wasn't in his experience. I already mentioned to you, um, Volta had found it that it was very difficult for him to conduct his experiments because of, of this bimetallic problem and static electricity. So if you pet your cat, you get static electricity. If you wear a wool sweater, you get static electricity. If you have two metals, you get static electricity. So he was spending all this time ridding himself from background static electricity to do his experiments. And when he read Galvani's papers, Galvani wasn't doing any of this. Mm. And then when he read that the uh, frog leg was hung on a brass hook Right. Which was attached to an iron fence. Okay. <laughs> he said, uh-huh. Something's going on here. Yep. Something's going on. There's two metals involved. And that was the explanation. Well, of course, Galvani didn't accept that. And, and this caused a war, literally a scientific war, where everyone was either on one side or the other. But we now know that the frog legs were twitching because of this these electrochemical reactions between the brass and the iron fence, there was no uh, right. electricity being produced by the leg. There is something that sort of macabre about about uh, reanimating corpses, whether it's frogs' legs or humans. And I suppose around about that time, we're you know culturally, the the idea of electricity is this rather mystical force that can kind of reanimate corpses. And I, I think of of course of Mary Shelley and and Frankenstein. And I just sort of wonder. Where that idea did, was, there a sort of a link between what Galvani was doing, what Volta was doing, and, and the kind of the sort of gothic novels of the age that were that were thinking about that. In a word, again, yes. Okay, uh, this is the presumed connection. Galvani, you know, aside from this frog leg thing, he was a serious scientist, and he mm. also had a nephew, Aldini. Uh, his nephew was also a serious scientist interested in electricity. And ironically, Aldini started using Volta's piles to generate electricity 
Not the hemorrhoids. <laughs> and <laughs> the other what he decided to do with this, he decided to up the game. Uh, mm. So he left fr- frog legs behind and he, went, he started shocking human bodies. And where was he getting these bodies? He was getting these bodies from the regular executions that were happening at the time. Decapitations, hangings, etc. And he worked at a deal to get these bodies fresh from the executioner. And he basically showed that with electricity, he could get facial expressions to come on the body. He could could get the bodies to sit up. He could get the legs to move, things like that. And, and, And so he was doing some serious science between the relationship between electricity and the nervous system, but he was also doing public demonstrations. Most scientists did public demonstrations to suit their patrons for, to earn some money, you know, to attract public attention to their work. This is what Aldini did. And many people were really uh, freaked out by these public demonstrations. Uh, the, the common people, many common people didn't understand what Aldini was doing at all. They thought he was trying to bring these bodies back to life because that's exactly what it looked like, that these bodies were coming back to life. So Aldini became kind of famous, notorious in the scientific community for doing these experiments. And Mary Shelley, okay, you asked about Mary Shelley. So Mary Shelley, um, her father lived at this time, and he was friends among the the movers and shakers, including the, the, the leading scientists at the time. And so he undoubtedly knew all about Aldini. And although Mary Shelley was only about three years old at the time that Aldini was doing these experiments, it has been suggested, and it's probably correctly, that sometime during her childhood, her father told stories mm-hmm. to her about Aldini. So when it came her turn to write a scary story <laughs> uh, for this competition she had entered, she decided, hey, uh, I think I'm going to try to bring a body back to life. And she's very cagey about how this happens in the novel. You know, in the movies, it's always electricity. She insinuates it's electricity in the novel. She's, there's lightning and other things about electricity in the novel. But she never comes right out and says it's mm-hmm. electricity, presumably because if you knew this, you could do the same thing, you know? Right. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway. It's the spark of life, the spark of life. Yeah, right. So, so it's presumably it was Aldini's work that inspired her to write this novel about a dead person coming back to life. Nice. Let's, uh, I want to move on. So batteries as we know them now. So we, we can thank Leyden Jars. We can thank Volta and his pile. We can thank Fish. And of course, the you know, the 20th century was revolutionized in part because of battery technology, the idea that you could store electricity in batteries. I just want to sort of pick up on some modern batteries, particularly sort of lithium ion batteries, in our quest to kind of decarbonize the world, in our quest to be able to store electricity in more sophisticated ways. Are we looking back to the past, looking back to biology, looking back to, to as we often do, to ideas that we once had? You know, modern batteries, you mentioned the lithium-ion battery, they essentially function the same way as Volta's battery did. Yeah, but just different metals. Different materials different, yeah. and have to have different characteristics. Lithium mm-hmm. is particularly useful because it's extremely light. You know, car batteries are usually made of lead. If you had to run your, your laptop computer with a car battery, it wouldn't it wouldn't work for us. And these batteries are pliable. And, uh, and so that's what's used um, for almost all of our needs now, including electric cars. The limits to where our technology can go are often battery limits. 
Our friend Elon Musk, is uh, one of his quests has been to uh, improve the battery. But it's, it's been tough to do this. Some people are looking back again at electric eels to try to get some inspiration Well, that's there. what I was kind of hinting at, because I had heard something about, oh, yeah, we're going to go and plug eels into your computer or your car. And, and, but I don't think they've got very far with it. <laughs> No, it's it's proved to be as daunting a problem as a Volta faced, and I, yeah. perhaps they're hoping that they might stumble onto some clue, just as he did, you know, in trying to emulate the fish. But yeah, biomimetics, as you as you mentioned earlier, is the rage these days, and people are looking to the animal kingdom for inspiration into how to solve problems that evolution has essentially solved. Well, it's a good bit of design software using natural selection as a sort of design software. Yeah, these approaches. Have have already been vetted over hundreds of millions of years, you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, yeah. we need to take those clues from the animals. Will, will we get a, a new revolution in batteries, you think? Because I, I, I always, it's a bit of a, it's a cliche to say the holy grail, but I know there's so much technology and so much thought and effort going into improving batteries now. I'm optimistic that that's the mm. case because because, <laughs> uh, because uh, I'm hopeful that so many people are interested in it, that someone will have a eureka moment and transform electricity just as Volta did. Yeah, no, I hope so. It's very often how progress of technology and ideas are, can be sort of held back by one particular thing. Things like the, the height of skyscrapers was always held back by the technology behind elevators, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when elevators right. got better, then we could build higher. And batteries is one of, one, of those, one of those things. There are, there you go. If you want to win a Nobel Prize, get on to thinking about better batteries. Actually, the um, lithium-ion people, they won the Nobel Prize. I think. They already they, won they, it. Yeah, so the battery already got a Nobel Prize. I mean, they didn't have Nobel Prizes when Volta was around. No. <laughs> around. And I don't know how much... Um, many Nobel Prizes they want to devote to batteries, but uh, it's a good time to get in. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been lovely, lovely to chat. Quick, um, your, your book, Spark, you mentioned, you can do, a, you, this is your chance to do a quick plug. Yeah. Yeah. For, for those of your listeners who are interested, I've recently published a book called Spark, the, the Life of Electricity and Electricity of Life by Princeton University Press. Listen, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Pleasure. There we go. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your delightful company as ever. You know what I'm going to say next? Don't forget, give us a rating and a review because it helps others discover the show. And we always like to share what we like and it would make me very happy. Um, And also, we just like hearing from you. So do get in touch um, to say hello. Get in touch with your wonderful ideas for future episodes. Next time, next episode... It's an episode on Warhammer. Do you know what I'm talking about? I had no idea what Warhammer was. I've never heard of it. It is, in fact, a game. And if you've got no idea what it is, then don't worry. Because it's even though we do discuss the invention of this particular game, it's a little bit like Dungeons & Dragons, I suppose, it's actually an episode more about how we invent fantasy worlds. It's an episode really about the invention of creativity if you like where that creative spark comes from that lets us immerse ourselves in alternate realities and it's a really really interesting episode and i think you will like it because we like the same things while i still have you very briefly if you fancy getting all of the history hit podcast archive 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.